Hi, my name is Dominique, and together with my team, we produce the content for our weekly Swisspreneur episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's show. So the people that you hire first, they will attract the next 10 or the next 20, and then so and so on and so forth. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Phil, a warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about what it means to be a CEO of a startup. And Daniel Gutenberg once called you the best startup CEO in Switzerland. What did he actually do to earn this title? <laughs> well, first of all, I think he said that because he's also the chairman. So he <laughs> he's not completely objective when saying that, I think. Um, and also, he probably said that when we were at the very top, when we had a, a very steep growth curve behind us, um, we also we always had a very good uh, relationship together, I would say, and um, hence a big respect, at least from my side, and I think from him as well. Tried to be as transparent as possible always with him, and I think that that's probably the reason why he said that. But nevertheless, I don't I don't think I really am, and and I also don't think. He would probably phrase, phrase it differently. <laughs> well, I think that's also part of the Swiss humility yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that we see right now. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think there's still a lot to learn. So, and, uh, and I had a very steep learning curve over the last four years. I wouldn't consider myself the best startup CEO of Switzerland yet. I, I tried to be at one, one day, but I'm certainly not yet. So I think these are two important characteristics. You don't consider yourself to be the best, and you also say that there's always something new to learn. I think that's actually the right characteristic for being the best startup CEO. <laughs> Thank you. I hope, I hope others have that as well. So what does it actually mean to be a startup CEO? Like, What tasks do you have to tackle on a daily basis? What are you responsible for? Uh, good question. I mean, it obviously changes. It changes depending on the the, li the life cycle, the state of the company that you are in, um, but but it also changes with the team that you are dealing with, and 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 basically you 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 have different struggles every <laughs> every day, basically. So so <laughs> you, you cannot really nail it down to one thing. I think overall, what what is what are the most important things to do as a startup CEO is that you need to take care of the team. I do. I personally believe that this is the, the key thing that you a hire the best people, all people that that are that are better than yourself. I really think that this is key to the success of a, of a startup, and that you make sure that they stay with you, that they are that they are happy, and especially that they believe in the in the in the north star goal mm -hmm. that you, that you are aiming for. And then you have other other tasks to do generally, like stakeholder management, like investors. You have to deal with them, and then obviously you also have a certain representative role. Uh, you need to be active in, um, in in sales and partnerships and and to, to the outside world. Absolutely, I think those are kind of the most important things. And then obviously, as I said, you you run from fire to fire <laughs> and try to do something about it. So a startup CEO could also be called firefighter. I would certainly say so, yes. <laughs> Let's dig a bit deeper into the different topics and the areas that you just mentioned. Um, taking care of the team starts with hiring the best people. Mm -hmm. How did he do that? Like, what was your learning curve there? What's your best practice to hire and find the best people? I wouldn't say that I always did that. I, I think I, sh I could have done better in the in past. With art? So. I read a lot about how to set up the perfect team, and I think there was once some somebody once wrote in a blog that you need to to hire always the best people, and I was, I was like, yeah, okay, that's easy, I can do that, but I didn't in the end. When I look back, I think where, when I would start all over again, and I will most certainly do at one point in time, um, then I think you have to have the absolute perfect first five to ten people around you. Why is that important? Because it, 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 it has a, some sort of an accelerating effect. So the people that you hire first, they will attract the next ten or the next twenty, and then so and so on and so forth. And right. if the first five 
beside the founding team. I mean, there's there's no way around the founding team anyway. Sure. But then the first five people that that you hire, they need to be absolutely fantastic. And and you need to, like I would the next time I start a company, I would much rather wait two years with uh, with hiring the first five. But I would do everything I can to to really hire the absolute best that are that are matching with my strength or or weaknesses especially. So they need to they need to counterweight that to the to the strengths and weaknesses of the of the founding team. I think that's crucial. And then it has an it it, it kind of flows down to to the rest of the team. So don't compromise there. It's Never. either hell yes or hell no. Yes. Never. Never. And if you and if you realize that you make a mistake, you correct it as fast as somehow possible. I think there was once a saying that I read in a book. Uh, it said, "Hire slowly, but fire fast." Yeah, I would certainly, I would certainly sign that. Yeah, yeah. But where do you actually find these people? Is there any trick once you talk to certain people, or even where you can find them, that you can make sure that they are actually a good fit, that they are the right ones? Yeah, so there's a there's a very good blog about that on uh, the from Sequoia Capital on their on their website, and basically what you do first is you go back in every state of your life and like when you studied or when you worked in another company, and you write down the top three people that 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 you have in mind from there, and then you try to get them. Like you you ask yourself when you studied. Who do, who do you did you want to work with, or who delivered the best? And that's actually how we got uh, our now CFO. That's that was I would say one of one of the best hires. Awesome. And you did that back from university. That yes. was like where you met yeah, first. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a very good framework to follow. Uh, yeah. Very applicable. Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, it has certain other steps as well, but it also goes. You can also look in your personal environment. It, the, you didn't necessarily need to work with that person, but also amongst your friends. You probably have friends. Some of my closest friends, I would, I would never want to work with them. <laughs> I, I love them, but uh, not, not as, a, as my colleague. But then I have others that I think, oh no, that they, they would actually be a perfect fit. They would come in with a lot of strengths that I'm missing and that could really bring the company further. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's how you should kind of go back through your own life and then just try to figure out who's the best and then take it from there. And then obviously that's probably not everything. Like you, you also need to hire external. And there we made really good um, experiences with, uh, with with case studies along the way. We tried to put the person in the in the actual spot and try to look on how how they would solve a problem that that is a problem for the business, and that also worked fairly well. Did you also do like a, a trial day where they came to the office for like half a day or a full day to work together, or was that more on a, a case by case uh, specific? request we never did a uh, trial day but I think it would be a very good uh, a, a very good way of testing it we never we never did it I read about it but um, unfortunately never tried it what we did is half a day case study mm -hmm. so we said as kind of the final stage you come in we give you a case study you have uh, three hours to prepare and then you present on how you would solve a problem that we are dealing with right now nice. and that 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 really helped is there anything else that you look for besides the result, what they actually present? Um, I'm thinking about like the energy of the person or the way that they interact with others, the way that they gather information. Is there anything else that you watch out for in that regard? Yeah, certainly. There are many factors. Um, it obviously also depends on the role. So if, you, if you're hiring for an operations specialist or an engineer, these, these people tend to not be as extroverted as probably a salesperson. So if, if you if you want to hire a salesperson and you get them a case study, then it's very important how they present themselves, how eloquent they are and um, and so on. Whereas for an engineer, it's, it's more than like, can you come up with the perfect solution for a very complex problem? Now, once you actually have the people on board and you found the right people, how do you take care of them? As you mentioned, as the second important part in taking care of the team, how do you make sure that they stay? It's it's tricky in a way because I do always believe that you need to be as transparent as possible. 
but you also want to feel, want to make them feel comfortable and you it's it's difficult especially when you when you when you're on a, on a rocky path so how do you do that looking back i think it was crucial that for a certain time i was in very transparent with the team mm-hmm. um so for instance we shared the management um meeting protocols with the whole team i always shared the the investor reporting with with the team then I kind of lost it, which I, looking back, I consider it as a, as a mistake. I would, because then when we, when we kind of hit the wall, mm-hmm. it was important that the people knew where, uh, where we are and they really appreciated it. And as we always try to hire very good, very smart people, they understood it. They didn't, so the best ones were the ones that that, that wanted to stay because they still believed in the overall purpose and, and, and the vision, nevertheless, uh, that we, we were actually on a, on a difficult path then. So, and I think it has to do with transparency. So you need to, you need to inform them and you shouldn't lie, but it's, a, it's tricky. It's, it's, it's really tricky. But in the end, I think there's no way around, uh, around being transparent with the team, making them believe in the purpose uh, and in the vision. And in the end, you anyway don't want people that are only here when things are going good. The best are sure. the, the best people are the ones that uh, that that are with you when when things are rocky. Exactly. Yeah, I think that also applies to personal lives too. Yeah, 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 for sure, <laughs> for sure. It's always easy to be with the winner. Of course. <laughs> you mentioned the division and the overall goal. Um, I think that's also a very important part of being CEO to communicate that, to create and shape that. How did you go about that? How did you actually come up with a compelling vision that was motivating for the team? And how did you go about communicating and facilitating that internally? Yeah, so that's also, I think in the meanwhile, after five years, I know it a bit better on how to do that. And and, and what I would say is what you need to do is you need to define a purpose of the company. And that purpose shouldn't change. It should never change. The vision and the mission is something that changes along the way, but the purpose should always be the same. So everyone in your team should always know why the hell are we getting up in the morning? Why do you get up in the morning? Yeah, yeah. why I get up? Well, I always wanted to do something good for SMEs. (laughs) So I always wanted to make SMEs more successful by giving them access to the right type of financing. Um, and I and I thought this is this really makes a difference in a way, and um, and I think this is crucial for a startup. I mean, in a startup you go through so many ups and so many downs, and the team as well. It's, I mean, it's just not comparable to any sort of corporate work. And in a corporate, usually things are rather stable. Usually, there are also always uh, rocky situations, but you don't really feel it as a as a regular em- employee, so to say. But in a startup, I mean, there's so many reasons why why you should leave <laughs> and go for the more stable option. But if you believe in the purpose, then you believe in it. Then you believe in what you're doing, and then you can still change the strategy and you can still change the vision to a certain degree. Also, not on a daily basis, but you can change a vision and you can certainly change uh, also the mission if, if you if you realize that you are on a, on the wrong path i mean you should so if you're purpose driven then you just find if something's not working out you just find another way to make it happen and then you adapt the vision into mission i guess yeah i think so yeah okay. yeah i think in that order so purpose vision mission so then that's kind of also the, 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 the number of times you can change it. So the mission can, can be changed on, let's say, on a more or less regular basis, not on a weekly basis. The vision can also be changed, but also rather every two years, if you really realize that something, something is not going towards that North Star that you set, but the purpose should never change. Have you ever changed the vision of Advanon along the way? Yeah, we changed it, I think, twice. Okay. Yes. Do you have like an example what it was and what it was after? Um, let me think. <laughs> I think in the beginning, we, we, in the very beginning, we only had a vision and a mission and no, no purpose. Okay. We didn't define a purpose. So the vision was rather purposey. <laughs> so, so more like we want to make uh, SME successful. And then 
you can then we moved a bit more towards something tangible. So in, in the vision, we want to, we, in the end, we said we want to help, we want to be able to help every SME in Europe to get access to the right type of financing. So that, that has more than a, a size a size to it, whereas the purpose is, is, it doesn't really matter on the size or the success or whatever. And beyond having a motivating purpose for your employees, you know, there are also many other things that you could offer, like free coffee or other perks, also employee stock options and so on. What role do these other sort of incentives or motivation packages play to make your employees stay and make them happy? They're quite important, but not, not for materialistic reasons, rather because I think their perks are a perfect way of shaping your culture. So you can, for instance, it, it, it has a massive impact, in my opinion at least, if you say everybody needs to pay for the coffee, or if you say the coffee, for sure not. Or when you say you go for every Friday we have some sort of free beer or something, and you do something together. And it's, then it's not really about that. No, no employee would then calculate, oh, how much money do I spend on coffee or not, but, or, or on a beer on, on Friday night. And also for the, for the company, I mean, especially in a startup, this is nothing. It's, that's, that's not a cost. But you shape the culture with it. And I think, therefore, they are incredibly important. And that's also why I still believe that this once, we were once very famously in the media because of the perks that we set and I can fully stand behind them. Like I, I would do it all, all over again. So you would recommend other startups to also apply this tactic sort of? Yeah, this tactic, but you need to, I mean, I, I started to write down my learnings on, on, on a block and, and there's, you need to make sure that the culture that you're shaping, they, they go hand in hand with, with the strategy and the industry that you're in. But not necessarily. The, I mean, the perks they they allowed a lot of they allowed to, the employees to have a lot of flexibility and, and these things. And I think they are that that's crucial. But then you still need to make sure that in the end you have some sort of an excellence uh, aspect to your culture as well, especially in our industry, in the financial industry. So, so I think that yeah. Yeah, that's important to be aligned. How do, you, how do you then make sure that this is also part of the culture and basically that people have this also in their DNA? Yeah, so honestly, I must say I failed on that. So, so it's not that I can give you the perfect answer. <laughs> um, I think what you need to do, so what we have done, for instance, we have every, every second week we have an all hands and there we have a category that says uh, that, uh, that is fuck up of the week. And there, that was, that was there to share a mistake that you've done, which should really shape an error-friendly culture in a way, which I, on the one hand, think is very important. Mm -hmm. What we then initially said we should do is that you're basically only allowed to do that mistake once and then share it and then everybody knows it and then you are on a good path. When I look back, I would say we didn't, we didn't stick to the do it once thing. We shared mistakes, which was good, mm -hmm. but then we didn't act on, hey, you actually, you, you get a problem when, when you, when you keep on messing up. Right. And that wasn't, that wasn't good. So I would really say that you should, you should try to have a, an error friendly culture, but then you also say, hey, look, this is okay. You made a mistake. You shared it with, with the company, which is good. We learned from it as a group. So it's, it's collaborative learning, right. but it doesn't happen again. And so you, you should note, note it down somewhere and then say to everyone, hey, look, this is something we already did and we are not doing it twice. And did you just not enforce that? That you then like had probably also the difficult talks to the employees where you said, hey, you did that mistake before and now it happened again. Exactly. Now we need to have a serious conversation, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we always said one of our values was uh, we are owners. So I truly believe in, in ESOP, in, in, in ownership of the company, but also in ownership of a process. So everybody should have, should own a process, should, should own what they're doing on a daily basis. And we did that, define it somehow, but especially on the process side, I was just not strict enough there. I, uh, I, sh I should have done better there. Yeah. 
do you think that this should be the CEO's job uh, to really be strict there, or should there be also someone else like playing the good cop and the bad cop? The the CEO's job is to shape the culture, to shape the principles that everybody works towards. And then obviously you cannot, especially if if, if the company is growing, you you cannot you, you cannot take care of every person and the, every little process that's that's impossible but you what you can do and have to do is that you make sure that you set principles that you set values and they are withheld by your closest uh, your close to your management team and then it needs to trickle down and if something is not enforced also amongst let's say an intern or so then it just you should hear from it and then you need to talk to to, to the person that is in the end responsible for. And then it's also a learning. But then you, you also need to talk about that because then, it's, then it's, it's wrongly set in the organizational management. And then, I mean, that's, all, that's okay, that, that happens. So, but then you need to learn from it and you need to make sure that these things are, are in place and trickle down through, through the whole organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you also mentioned are actually two different things were t- uh, management meetings and all hand team meetings. Um, I wonder, like, what kind of different meeting types do you have to also ensure the communication along the management team, but also along the whole company? Mm-hmm. How were you set up? Where are you set up there? Yeah, so we always had um, weekly or bi-weekly. We kind of changed that. Then we also had monthly management meetings. In the end, uh, in the end, we stick to bi-weekly. Um, I think that's okay, but maybe also weekly. It's a bit of a trial and error in my opinion as well. And then we have bi-weekly all hands with everyone. And that should be more, the all hands is, has a rather standard agenda in our, in our case. And I think that, that's something that, that we did well. So it's an overall update on our numbers and where we stand, what are our biggest challenges right now, um, and also what we did well. So it's also product demo from the engineers so that they can show, hey, look, this is what we've done. Then everybody gets a bit more excited about new features that are in place. And then we had categories like um, the fuck up, as I said, but then also shout outs and shout outs where that somebody can anonymously thank your colleagues. And that was actually a very much appreciated uh, category because all of a sudden, you, like um, somebody that is maybe not so extroverted um, gets a shout out and in front of everybody, very nice. then it, yeah, you hear your name and that you did something very well. That, that was it, that was good. Yeah. Also good appreciation for, again, exactly. the culture, right? Yeah, exactly. And then I, I also added one other category in which people can anonymously um, ask questions to the management. And then I, I or somebody else uh, needed to answer those at the spot. Yeah. That was also good. So that kind of creates, creates a constant feedback loop. So that way you have a good information flow where you actually inform and bring everybody on the same page where the company stands, but you also have this interaction yeah, between exactly. uh, everybody. And I think that's, yeah, that sounds very valuable. Yeah, no, that was, that was certainly one of the good things. The... And who's actually part of your management team? How have you like split up the roles there to function well as a company? <laughs> um, so in the beginning, we had the founders, mm-hmm. obviously, and then we tried to... We, we try to hire alongside our weaknesses. And then in the end, we ended up with a management of uh, five people. It also fluctuated a bit. Then, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. We, we, we never reached a size in which we thought it's important to have a uh, management and then an extended management or, yeah. So I was lucky enough on that, <laughs> on that side that we, that we were able to stick with just a management. And Absolutely. Yeah. And what are the different roles? Like you have someone responsible for product, I assume. Yeah. Um, what are the, the other roles that you have along the management team? So that obviously also changes uh, along the way. Um, we have a, a CFO that in our case basically had, he, he was also chief firefighter. <laughs> the F not only stands for financials in that case. So he was also risk officer, um, then partnerships and all other things. Um, but right now he's CFO. Then we have a COO who takes care of all the operational tasks. And then we had a CRO, a chief risk officer. That's especially in our case important. Um, and 
And then what else? Well, we also once had a chief sales or business development, head of business development. That's now, I do that now. And I think that's a very good transition to the representative uh, function that you also have as CEO because they're also involved in, in important deals. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more about what you actually do there and uh, how much of your work time that this absorbs? So in the beginning, I, I was basically the only business development person. Right. So as a CEO and founder, you try to get as much as many customers as somehow possible, partners, etc. I always did that. Um, then when we reached a certain size, was able to, to hire people that, that are taking care of the smaller customers and kind of the customer relationship, etc., etc. And then once we had the size in which there was a uh, head of business development, so that that was then basically responsible for all these things. And I always step back a bit more, more towards like the, the more strategic partnerships, mm -hmm. etc. I do think that there's no way around that, that in the beginning, you need to do that as a, as a CEO, you need to take care of all and also you need to learn from the customers, so that you understand the customer, you understand the market and you understand it that well that you that you can then in the end decide when you reach product market fit. Mm -hmm. um, but we had, I had once an, uh, an interesting discussion with, uh, with a more senior person in our team. And he was of the impression that as a CEO, you also need to lead all the sales and customer support people directly. Um, and you shouldn't have a, um, a head of business development. Okay. Do you agree with um, that? No, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> I really disagree. And I think there are some, some things that are so important to do as a CEO that you should not underestimate. A lot of people tend to underestimate the, the things that you need to do um, alongside taking care of the team and, and investors. And I really think that there's nothing more important than hiring and keeping the right people. And you, you really have to do everything you can to do that beside the customer. But obviously there is a certain, there is a certain point in time and when you can do that switch. In the beginning you sure. cannot, but yeah. if, you, if you reach a certain size... Then yeah, first you focus on customers, right? Exactly. And then once you get them, then you focus on building exactly. a team. Yeah, exactly. And then you can still be involved in like strategic partnerships and bigger customers. And I think you should. Yeah. But then that uh, tendency, like it gets lower and lower compared to the team component, the bigger your company gets to a certain degree. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Another important point you mentioned is stakeholder management. I think along there, the probably most prominent one are the investors mm -hmm. that you have to deal with. How did you do that as uh, you know startup CEO? What's the best practice there that you learned? So I, I think we underestimated that in the beginning a bit. Not only we as, a, as the founding team, but also the investors itself. We were, we were first-time founders. And I think looking back, it would have helped us a lot to avoid mistakes that we made. Mistakes that could easily be avoided with, with a bit of more experience. Just to, Can you give us an example for one mistake that you made there? Yeah, one example. So I have two that, that come to my mind. So one example is, is that we spent roughly 70,000 euros on a lawyer to get the license in, in Germany. That didn't work at all. So, and what we did is we decided based on the hourly costs of the lawyer. And we thought this is, a, this is because we, we want to be cost efficient. It's so really stupid. <laughs> really, I mean, uh, what we should have done is we should have worked with an expert that might have had the double the hourly rate, but actually knew what he or she was doing. And I think uh, investors can help with that. Usually investors have a very good network. If they don't know somebody personally, then they can ask somebody that knows somebody. And we should have done that more on a, on, on a board level. And then we should have proactively asked our investors. That's, so first of all, it's our mistake. And then they, then, then they should have helped. That would have, that would have saved us a lot of money because in the end we didn't get it and we spent 70,000 euros, which is, which is horrible as, a, as an early stage yeah. startup. Um, and then there was another, another really interesting one, actually. 
that um, I once went to an investor, um, I think it was shortly after Christmas and New Year's, and then they had a new office somewhere, um, temporary office, because they had a, um, how do you say that, a, a Kurzschluss, the coffee machine. Um, so the, 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 the office burned down. Not completely, but they, they had a big damage in, wow. in, in their office. So they need to, needed to move out of there temporarily. And then we talked about that. And then he said, well, look, I mean, we, this is obviously not really cool. It, we have a lot of opportunity costs, etc. But the, the insurance takes the main damage. And I, then I thought, okay, well, on the, obviously. So I went back uh, and I, I really remember on the tram thinking, hmm, so if we would have something like that, who would, which insurance would cover that? And then as it turns out, it's a business liability insurance, but this is not mandatory in Switzerland. And when we started, and I, I understand now that this is really stupid, but uh, when we started, we just took care of all the mandatory insurances. So it turns out we didn't have a business liability insurance. And this thing costs around two, 300 uh, francs a year. But it would have, I mean, we would be, have been bankrupt if our, if our coffee machine <laughs> had that issue. And that's, that's, that's really not okay. I mean, and I think it, that also could have come from more experienced people that they, they should just take care of first-time founders in a sense that say, okay, here's a checklist. Did you have number one to 10? And then, yeah, we got a business liability insurance. It was easy. We never had a, sure. but still, it's, we, we should have done that, that better. It's just a risk that you don't want to face, basically, because exactly. it's easily avoidable. Exactly. It's super easily avo avoidable, yes. Um, and so, so I would say, looking back, we should have, in the very beginning, when getting the professional investors in there, we should sit at the table and then we say, okay, so this is the governance that we the, that we set up. This is what we what we expect from each other. It's not a one-way street. It's not what the founders expect from the investors. I mean, they they trust you and usually. And I also, I must say, I mean, I have a very good relationship uh, with our investors uh, mainly, and um, and 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 I'm very thankful for for what they allowed me to do. But they should also say this is what we expect from. The founding team from the management and vice versa, and then you and then you set the proper governance structure, yeah. and I think that's that's something we didn't do well. That's something I would I would do better next time. I think that's a highly important point because if you don't set these expectations clearly, both sides can get easily disappointed. Right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and um, you you can avoid that, and it it actually it really helps you as well. To me, there's no doubt about that. But if you set up a proper board, a very well-functioning board, and, and, and a good structure on how to take decisions, how to set strategy, etc., then everybody sits in the same boat. And everything is well-aligned, and you get, you get inputs from much more experienced people that have seen a lot of things. And you, I mean, I was 24 when I started Advanon. So I, I, I basically, I barely knew how to work. So, sure, yeah. so, so you just don't know so many things. And a lot of these things can be avoided because you, you bring certain qualities as a founder, but not everything, by far not everything. And how would such a board structure look like that you can actually also put your investors to work as like ideal? Yeah. Um, so how I would have imagined, or how I would do it in the future. Again, it's always easier looking back, right? But uh, <laughs> how I would do it is that I would say, okay, so this is basically on two pages. This is our governance. What we expect from the board is that we meet every two months, for instance, and all strategic decisions are taken in there, uh, are discussed in there. There's no, um, there's no decision made above 50,000 Swiss francs on the operational level. You can always have um, decisions made via email or so if there's something important. But then, but then you have something like a two-pager and that's signed by everyone and you decide on which decisions are taking, taken where. Mm -hmm. 
And also you need to sign off the strategy in a way. And then you, as I said, you can always change. That's easy. I mean, course, you, yeah. you, and you should, you have to, especially in the early stages. But then you have a sounding board. You can, you can ask, you can also, for, as, as a founder, you, I think it's fair to say that you can also ask your investors certain things, right? You, you can call them and you, they should be available. And, and again, I, I'm really not saying in, in any way that we didn't have that. I think I didn't do it well enough in a sense that we didn't set that structure in the beginning. Right. But our investors, they're, 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 not, they're not responsible for mistakes we made. That's not what I want to say. It's actually you as a founder have to create that structure and make sure that you get the support that is available there. Absolutely. It will not just fall into your lap. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can generally, generally you can assume that the people that are investing in startups are usually very busy people. Right. And they're, they're, not, they're not waiting for you. Obviously, they shouldn't. So yeah, it's your you as a founder. It's your job to do that. That you can say, hey, look, I'm very glad that you invest in in us, in me, in our team, and in our idea. Um, and then you can still say there are there are investors that say, hey, look, I, I just really don't have time. Then that's fair enough. But then you then you you also know where you are. But then you can set up the the, the board in a way. Probably you have a lead investor, right? That, that should take place in the board because they invest more. They probably have a more professional structure. And then, and then you can say, okay, so this is, this is how I imagine it to be like. And then, and then they should say yes, or they can also say no, but then you need to find another way. But if you don't define it in the beginning, then, then you're kind of left out somewhere. It's just more risky of, uh, as I said, like not exceeding the expectations exactly. that you have of each other. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, one important uh, point is also how you communicate and collaborate with investors in terms of crisis. There was a fraud case that was keeping you busy, uh, which was not your fault, uh, but it basically happened and uh, had also a significant impact on your business. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that this is a pretty challenging time to then also you know, work with investors. How did you go about that? Did that change anything in the things that you just said? No, it didn't. It, it didn't. Quite the opposite, actually. So when, when we realized that we have this fraud, what we did is that we, um, my co-founder and myself, we took the train and went to, um, to Daniel Gutenberg. He, he used to be our chairman, um, into his uh, vacation home in the Engadin um, to tell him personally about uh, about uh, what's going on. And I think he really appreciated that. Um, How did you feel during that train ride up? I, I can well, imagine that was... Uh, terrible, terrible. Because yeah. I think, I mean, we were defrauded in a way. So the, he, the, the person did that very well, I must say, still. But it, in the end, it was also my decision to go from very, very small tickets into bigger tickets with more recurring customers. So the idea was that we really go into factoring the, 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 full, uh, the full accounts receivables book, which is essentially what we are doing. And then I obviously felt responsible for taking that decision. So, and then this happened was something that I didn't never expected in that, which is also a mistake. I mean, I must say, if you, if you re I mean, it's, it's part of that, that business. So it's not that, that it was completely not our fault. I mean, this, this guy did a good job and he is a criminal. Um, so that can happen. But I also think we were probably looking back a bit too naive to, um, to, to go in there with, without the proper structure. So obviously the train ride, coming back to your question, um, was, yeah, was terrible. <laughs> because I have a lot of respect. And I mean, in the, for, for our investors, always had, still have. And I felt, I felt, and I also am responsible in a way for that. Um, and there was, but there was something that I will never forget, and which actually uh, increased my respect for for Mr. Gutenberg even even much more. Was that he, in the end, he said, um, "Thank you very much for coming by, and don't be too harsh with yourself. Never forget, it's only a company." That's what he said. And uh, that, that was really, uh, that was really, really good to hear yeah. then. Because in the end, yeah, it's, it's as he said, it's, 
there's a lot of money involved. You don't want to lose that, especially you don't want to lose money from kind of role models that you have. Mm -hmm. So you never want to be in that situation. But in the end, it's, it's a company. It's not the end of the world. Companies come and companies go, and that's part of the game. I, I can imagine that this statement of Daniel Gutenberg must have felt like a huge relief also to just adjust the perspective. Yeah, massively, massively. He really did, did a massive favor there for me. Meant a lot, yeah. And I think this shows how important the selection of the right investors is, you know, to get support through the good, but also through the bad times. Absolutely, yeah. No, no question about that. I, uh, I owe him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Now we talked about the different tasks that you tackle as startup CEO. We talked about taking care of the team, stakeholder management, and also the more representative role. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else uh, that you think is important to bring on the map of startup CEO jobs? Um, well, I mean, it, it kind of goes in that, in, in that part of the hiring and the, the HR thing. That's just the culture that you set. I mean, you're, you're also chief culture officer in my opinion and the culture is crucial for us for a company that's what i what i truly believe that a lot of the public corporates lack and that's why they will uh, in the end they will disappear in one way or the other because it's just no because imagine how much hours we spent working of course, yeah. and you, you want to work in a culture that's that is actually <laughs> worth the time, <laughs> really. And I think that's, that's, that's a very important uh, role for the CEO. Anything else is just not sustainable in the long run, right? I, I truly believe so. Obviously, it's not the only, only thing, I mean, <laughs> but, sure. uh, but, but a very important part. Yeah, very important. So how did you actually, I mean, we, we, I think we touched certain points of that, but is there anything else you would like to add about how you actually build a good culture on purpose? like? what you actually did there in terms of activities and, and tasks that you completed there. Yeah, so we've set uh, values and we try to live these values. I mean, every, every company has values, but there's a, there's a very interesting book from Ben Horowitz about um, you are what you do, I think is the title. And it's, it's more about values versus virtues. So basically, uh, values are not what you the, the six seven words you have on the PowerPoint slide or you printed it out, but rather what you do. And we try to implement those values um, very, uh, very diligently. And so, for instance, as I said, the transparent value we try to um, we we shared everything. So we sh we shared all the. So all the, the management reports and the investor reports and we, in every all hands, I try to not withhold anything from the team. So if things went bad, I tried to say it always. Um, then we had one team, so we tried to actively take down all the barriers between the teams so that the silo thinking disappears. We, we did that by putting them in kind of temporary teams together. So we, we, we implemented um, share a day with in which we said that an engineer and a salesperson, they, um, they switch for one day. So a salesperson t sits one day beside an engineer and vice versa so that they understand that. So we, we actively try to try to make that a more collaborative uh, collaborative thing. And yeah, a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of the small measures that we did. And then we, we implemented the Adva perks, which as I said, perks are a very good way of shaping a culture. So we said, for instance, that we do have... Um, home office all the time so you can be fully flexible um, no no uh, we try to decouple basically the the work output from time not always so easy also given the given given the law that that we have but it's it's a lot of small things that that you try to do but I just think somebody needs to be responsible for actually taking care of that culture and there's in my opinion, nobody else that can do that um, than the CEO, or at least the CEO always needs to be back it up. If 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 you don't act like you want the culture to be, then it's never going to be implemented. Absolutely, and that's also very strongly linked to finding and hiring the right people because there you're looking for culture fit. So 
yeah. it makes sense that the CEO takes care of both. I think so, yeah. And and it's something that 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 always it always gets deprioritized, but it's so important. There was also one question that was sent to us over Instagram for this Q&A session. It's basically, can you learn to be a great CEO or not? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying. <laughs> so no, I hope so. And I think uh, you can, you can, but you need to experience it. I think that's especially in the Swiss culture, that's, that's a big issue, is that a lot of people are afraid of failing. And, you know, the thing is, you don't even need to fail on the overall project. You, you always fail on a daily basis. You take wrong decisions all the time. Um, I think it's just crucial that you, that you interact with yourself in a way and that, and that you try to, to be better the next time. And if you do that constantly, then there's no better way of learning than trying. And hence, I do believe that you can learn to be a great startup CEO. Um, as I said, I wouldn't consider myself that, but I will. I'm 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 working very hard towards it. So now I will I will keep you posted if I think I reached it. So if you're not there yet, at least you're on a very good path from our we, uh, point of view. We will we will see. I try. Let's also get into some more of the community questions. Um, Larson asked, "How do you actually balance the different tasks?" Like. How do you decide where you actually spend time on? We heard the different areas that you're active as a startup CEO, but how do you make sure how to balance your time uh, in the right way? Yeah, so there's this, um, there's an interesting uh, metric on that, and that is the importance scale versus... Uh, the urgency? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Urgency versus importance, exactly. right? Yeah. And I try to do that, honestly, I... I I, it doesn't really work. In our case, it was just we had so much firefighting all the time. So that there was never really, I never managed to get out of this um, important and very urgent <laughs> thing. So it just defined the, the 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 surrounding defining factor on why what what I'm what I'm supposed to do. Right. If in a perfect world, I would say you should set your priorities, and that, as I said. In a startup and as a CEO, in my opinion, the, the, the highest priority is the team mm -hmm. and is the purpose for the team. And you should hence allocate the most time in that. And making sure that you get the absolute best people that blow you away on a daily basis and just come up with solutions that you would have never come up with by yourself. And then try to try to create that smooth engine that allows all these people to that that their potential really fosters in a way or blossoms yeah. in the same direction goes the question about how you actually make decisions you know even if you are in the important and urgent stage you still need to make decisions is there any framework that helped you to make better decisions yeah i because i think when i look back and especially uh, after I read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, I, uh, that, that kind of helped me a lot to reflect on how I took decisions in, in, in the past. And I think I, I took a lot of decisions too fast, too, too much on the spot, okay. especially when, when, they, when they reached a certain importance. And, um, and now what I try to do is but this is this this is a lot of work in progress. I I try to adapt that that um, that metric or that scale that we just decided, and I added instead of urgent, I added strength, so topic strength, um, and then importance. And so, imagine you can imagine that on the important scale you have a one to ten scale, mm -hmm. so one to five, and then five to ten, and then on the other scale on. On, on the X or Y axis, however you want to frame it, you, you put your own strength on that particular topic. And then you reach, for instance, you reach uh, a certain area in which I personally believe that I'm pretty good in understanding people. So I feel that in that particular topic, when it's about something team-related or, or, or person-related, people-related, then I feel very confident in understanding 
how they feel and what they do. So I would consider myself on the more on the five to ten scale there. Right. Whereas I'm not I'm not the best when it comes to analytical thinking, project management, these kind of things. So what to do after each other. So there I think I'm more on the one to five. Mm-hmm. I'm not not super happy with that. I also think that probably I don't even need to be super good in that because there are there will always be people that are better than right. than, than I am. So and then you can put that in, in, in that scale and and when I'm when I consider it as my strength, I feel more comfortable in taking quicker decisions. When I consider it as not my strength and 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 think that I used to make mistakes in that area, but it's super important. Then I take more time. Then I say, okay, I need to at least take two or three days and I need to talk to more people to get different inputs. When I don't consider it my strength, but it's also not super important, then yeah, I mean, the lower it goes, for instance, what kind of colors of socks I'm I'm wearing today. (laughs) I don't consider myself super good in fashion. But it's also not really changing the, the the way the world goes. So I feel comfortable taking that decision right now. And so that's kind of the, the two metrics that, that I think you should look at. Obviously, this is this is not uh, not uh, very scientific, but it it gives you at least some direction. So when you when you try to change the the strategy of your company, for instance, then it's obviously a super important decision to make. So and then you don't. You just simply don't take it on the spot. You take more time. You talk to more people. You you, you get more insights, and you probably need a week to think about it. Absolutely. So, and that's that's how I at least try uh, try to do it. That's a very cool framework to actually also adapt uh, to to our own businesses. I think. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think it it helps. At least it helped me. It's just it's a very good reminder that. All the time when you, because you need to make so many decisions, right? And all the time when you think about that, okay, so how much does it really change the long-term success of the company? And then yeah. only to think about that already helps you to, to hopefully reach the, the right the right decision. In, in that regard, is there also, you know, when you say you talk to other people to make these decisions where you don't have your own, like your biggest strengths, is there like any circle or any... I don't know, like network that you approach to to get that feedback from. Yeah, I try. I I try to do that more and more. And obviously, you especially within your company, you start to understand people better. So, as I said, we have our CFO or our former COO, who's more senior, incredibly structured, very really super good in that. Um, not maybe was not the most creative person. That was then more my part. Sure. So th- then when I knew that, okay, so now I, I had this idea and we need to do that. Then I went to him and I, I asked him if, if he thinks this framework that I set up makes sense. Then very often he came up with good, with, with good add-ons. <laughs> so, and then, and that's kind of the, your first circle. And then, yes, you, you can try to, uh, to reach out to, to other groups. And I think, that especially in Switzerland, the startup ecosystem develops very well, in my opinion. We are, we're, we're still in the early phases, I think, but we there are some, some fantastic initiatives on, on that side going on. So the next question is, uh, I think, a, quite a funny one from Cedric, uh, uh, sorry, from Cash de Graham. And he asked, what was your favorite subject in school? <laughs> Uh, um, well, certainly nothing related to uh, to languages. <laughs> I I really liked everything natural science related, um, math, physics, these kind of things. Okay. Biology, in a way, His, history is history is very interesting in my case. I think it had. Uh, I'm in the meanwhile a big fan of history, and in the in the very early stages, uh, I, I, I really hated it. And then it got better and better and better. It also had to do probably with the teacher. <laughs> That's usually quite closely linked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now, Cedric Waldburger, what he wanted to ask is, has COVID-19 affected the companies you work with in any way, or also your company? 
Yes, it has. It has. Uh, in the very beginning, I was quite afraid that a lot of defaults will hit us. Then we did a stress test uh, amongst our portfolio companies, so to say. And given, given the fraud that we had, we were incredibly strict. And, and I think that now helped us. So in, in that stress test, it looked like, I mean, it would be naive to think there is no, no impact on, on SME's uh, ability to repay debt. But we are at least not, not really exposed to directly um, impacted industries like restaurants and, and hotels and tourism and these things. So we, we had almost nothing there. Um, but what was then a, a, a massive impact was the, the Bundeskredit, so all the help that came from the state that for a short period made our, our business model obsolete. So because all of a sudden everybody got free money and that has an impact, yes. I do think or hope it's temporary and I hope in uh, mid-May it will, it will be better again. On the other hand, uh, another Cedric, Cedric Pollack asked, do you see any opportunities because of COVID-19? There are, I mean, every crisis always comes with, with, with big, big opportunities. And what I there, it's more on like an overall macro, macro level in a way. And there, since COVID-19, that really strengthened my belief in alternative uh, monetary systems. And I do think that the opportunities there are incredible. Like, uh, unfortunately, quite or many people have realized that uh, already a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was not one of them, <laughs> I have to say. But in the meanwhile, I mean, in my opinion, what's going on with all the governments uh, around this world and what they're doing with printing money at an insane rate, it's just that there must be a massive change in that. And there, I think uh, there there are some 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 great opportunities to to grasp. And I think there there is a, a very good source, in my opinion. There is is, is Ray Dalio's uh, block among uh, uh, alongside the debt cycles and the long-term debt cycles, and how he thinks that the monetary system completely failed. And uh, surprisingly, he already said that last year, so before COVID nineteen. And um, I read that and I thought, yeah, that might actually be true. And now all of a sudden I think, wow, this is like so on point <laughs> That's, that yes, there will, there, will be, there will be very interesting opportunities out there. But there are, right now I, I see them on a very, very large scale. I think we could probably talk an hour about only yeah, that topic, exactly. which would also be interesting. But yeah. unfortunately, it's not the, yeah. the case today. But yeah. I'm also highly interested in that topic. And I think uh, in sure. the end, he inv invested or suggested to invest in gold, if I was not mistaken, in one of his articles. Yeah, yeah, gold but, and also a bit Bitcoin, I think. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I think there you are uh, well set up also with your connection to Daniel Gutenberg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, he was, he was one, or not unfortunately, but fortunately for him, he was one that understood it very early. Absolutely. <laughs> Then uh, another question coming in from Heluva Helena was, When giving up seems like the easier choice, what pushed you keep going? Um, yeah, I faced, I would say about three or four times I faced that, that point. And I think honestly, that was primarily the respect for the stakeholders. Stakeholders meaning our team that really put in a lot of work and that I really actually believed in what we have been doing that we didn't just create nothing. I think we, we created something good and, and there were external factors in a way that, that hit us, hit us hard, maybe hit us right and we deserved it, I don't know, but they just hit us very hard. So, and I didn't want to make the team feel like they did everything for nothing. And then obviously, as I said before, also I, I, I wanted to avoid to lose money from people that I have the highest respect for and that I look up to. Um, and yeah, and then they trusted me with their money and then I just didn't want to be the guy that, that, that really messes it up in a way. Although I must say, I mean, it, it, it can happen still. So it's, it's still, it's something that you also need to learn to deal with uh, as a founder. I mean, 
there are factors that you can that you can influence, that you can do better, that you can learn from, but there are also external factors that are simply yeah, it just happens. It's it's luck or bad luck. It's it 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 is how it is. And um and yeah, but but you want you don't want you just don't want to be that person. I think one thing that I did well on the other side is that I was always able to look in the mirror and 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 say like okay, I I never did something that that I did Pur- on purpose, not in the best interest of of the investors, and I think that helps as well. Absolutely, yeah. Then no matter how the outcome is, you are always like you, you kept true to yourself, right? So yeah, exactly, that's... exactly. And still, that keeps you going in a way. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And another question coming in from Mirta fourteen: How do you take care of yourself to perform at work? Do you have any tips for us? Um, yeah, this is also kind of an ongoing experiment for me. Um, I I realize it more and more on how incredibly important it is. I I didn't do that very well in the beginning, where I really just worked like crazy. Um, and in the meanwhile, I realized that my my output or my performance is not necessarily better if I just work 80, 90, 100 hours a week. It just just doesn't increase my output. Um, so in the meanwhile, I try to really stick to a certain sleep routine so that I, I try to get at least seven hours or in the best case, I actually try to get seven and a half hours of sleep. Um, and if I do that, I, I realize that I, I'm so much better performing the next day. Then I do, um, I, I started to do sports again helps helps to get the clear clear mind and for me it's it's always been the best way to deal with stress is that i just that i'm lucky enough to have a very strong social environment and it's just i mean i've i grew up on the countryside in a way and uh, still have my friends there my family there and then for them, it's it, it's always it's always when I'm when I'm home, I'm happy. So that's, <laughs> that's that 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 really helps me. You kind of have something to 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 go back, and then it's just not that big of a deal anymore. So there was one more question from Cedric Waldburger, and he asked, "What's your biggest learning from the year since starting Arvanon?" Yes. So I think when I look back, and my biggest mistakes that I ever that I made was in a phase when I lost self-confidence so so i tried to when when i thought i'm doing everything wrong that's when i did my biggest mistake like a self-fulfilling prophecy yes exactly and not and not the other way around so you should you should never i mean you should always be self-critical but you you should also always be able to tell yourself hey there's a reason why you are where you are and you didn't do everything wrong. That's not that's not true. And you need to. And I then had phases in which I thought I wanted to put everyone in front, only not me. Like I wanted to replace myself. Um, therefore, I hired senior people out of a weak spot. I would never do that again. Really, that was this, that was a big mistake. Because the the wrong motivation behind it. Or... Yes, exactly. I tried to solve a weakness of us by hiring somebody else without realizing it that this is the exactly wrong way of doing it. What you, there's no As a CEO and founder of a startup, you need to face your weaknesses the faster the better. And you also, but you also need to, uh, you need to run towards your weaknesses with your chin up. <laughs> uh, really, I think that that's crucial because then you, then I, I made the, the biggest mistakes. And when I look back, I, I think all these, these stupid mistakes there, they in the long run also helped me now to realize that actually it's not that bad and, and I can make it. And the next time I will, I will push through it. It's okay. <laughs> Is there any tip from you how to really boost and, and also support your self-confidence in tough moments? Yeah, the, not not really a not really a good tip, honestly. I'm 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 still working on that. You, I, I try to be as clear about my weaknesses, but also as clear about my strength. And you need to understand that you have a lot of strengths. Usually, every person has that, 
And then like that's also, I mean, that's also kind of a management leadership principles. You need to make sure that everybody feels valued and they know, and you also need to value yourself. And if you do that, then, then it's good. Then you will, you, you will succeed in the end somehow. That's also the, the beautiful appreciation factor that you built into the all hands meeting. That's like one of these parts that can really help there, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the last point that we want to tackle for today is, you know, if people want to do any additional reading or get more inspiration from other resources, is there anything that you can recommend where they can get management tips or CEO tips for startups? Yeah, so I, I try to, to read a lot of books about startups and, and from successful entrepreneurs. And there's, there was one issue that keeps on nagging me and that's every, everything always sounds so good like so easy like define a big vision and and like for instance peter thiel's book that that i'm i'm not a fan of sorry he says like yeah you need to you need to build a monopoly like yeah cool <laughs> thank you i know that <laughs> but so there there is a i really like the books of ben horowitz because it's more it's closer to reality the hard thing about hard things is is my favorite book, I would say. But also the the block of Andreessen Horowitz uh, A16 set is very useful in my opinion. Yeah. And also the block of um, of Boulderton Capital has a very useful block, and Sequoia Capital they they also share a lot of insights from from and and I I try to to read those all the time. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. That was a lot of fun and especially very cool stories and practical insights. Thank you Thanks. so much for taking the time, Phil. Uh, we wish you all the best and are curious to see where we will see you in a CEO position in 10 years and talk again then. We will see. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Stay connected with the Swisspreneur community through our LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. Make sure to subscribe to our show on whatever podcast platform you're using. See you next week for a brand new episode of The Swisspreneur Show.